no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Today on the episode, we have guest Chris Keithley, writer of Cinephilia and History or The Wind in the Trees. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about some shakeups that have been happening across the media landscape. Ralph, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, from one week to the next, things uh, never get boring. Um, they, they stay exciting because the media landscape keeps changing, and uh, hopefully what we're able to do here talking about it is to make sure that none of the, uh, the flurry of the more obvious issues that are going on get in the way of your seeing um, some, of the, some of the trees that are also being changed. Yeah, I was hoping that you could help explain, because I find um, some of these mergers that are happening, potential mergers that are happening, deals that are being struck, really complex and hard sometimes to follow the storyline. The first one that I wanted to get into was uh, the Sinclair deal. Would you mind just doing an explanation of exactly what's happening there and what are some of the potential outcomes? Well, okay, so the Sinclair Broadcast Group... Um, are a uh, collection of stations that are group-owned. The organization is primarily local television stations, and the organization has been growing. Um, And their primary political bent um, in terms of what they do is very much a uh, Koch brothers kind of conservatism. Um, And what they've done in the stations that they own uh, right now is they create basically, uh, well, the the two pieces that are most widely discussed, and John Oliver did some work on this also, um, are uh, must-run editorials that are, um, again, fairly conservative, pretty easily conservative, um, sort of Trumpian conservative, um, to, to give them a location, and they're must-runs for the stations. So when they replace you know, somewhere between two and three minutes of a local news broadcast with this nationally produced editorial. Um, and what's happening now that's uh, worth some notice, well, there's, and there's two kind of moving pieces. One is that Sinclair is interested in and has an offer to buy the Tribune uh, group of stations, which would basically uh, turn them into one of the largest conglomerates of local TV in the country, um, create a broadcasting powerhouse the way it's described in USA Today, uh, with more than 200 TV stations in 108 markets. So Sinclair would have this big footprint. The other, I should mention, the other piece that they um, tend to have as a must-run on local newscast is basically a, um, a a terrorism desk, which is sort of an update on. So they have a very, you know, a kind of an anti-Muslim slot that they put in, and it's as if there is a new story about terrorism every day. So they, they sort of force the local newscasts to do these pieces. Um, and so the you know the the the, the question is um, if they if they grow to this extent you're talking about a fairly large number of TV stations that are you know sitting on what is probably a you know kind of post network world right next to Fox News and One America News um, so that you'll have a plethora of choices of right wing offerings um, but it's the fact that they're kind of infiltrating local news with this political agenda that's uh, of the most concern. Uh, because simultaneously, the FCC has been uh, scaling back uh, regulations on who can own how much of the media in any particular market. Um, as we've all, those of us who have seen the newspaper presence dwindle and seen local news consolidate know, um, the, the amount of local control and the diversity of local control, uh, the amount has gone down and diversity has certainly gone down because of this group ownership thing. They recently, the FCC recently removed a <clears throat> regulation that a station had to have a local studio. Um, so now they can basically satellite in the way that they have with uh, radio. So um, these are things that, and, and by the way, there, there is still, those of you who may have gone through uh, the exercise of adding public comments, uh, real public comments as opposed to the fake public comments, um, as the FCC was trying to decide about net neutrality, 
well, you can take all of that energy and you can now turn it into posting um, for the um, Sinclair merger to, you know, kind of uh, be opposed to it um, so that, you know, you two can um, maybe go through an exercise of futility of saying uh, that you don't think that this broadcast merger is such a good idea. If you're interested, what you want to do is look for FCC docket number 17-179. Um, and I'm not telling you what to write there. That would be wrong. But you should go look. And um, I think that whereas there were millions of comments on the net neutrality, I believe last time I looked, there were only about 3,500 comments. Um, I don't know quite what the processing uh, uh, status is at the FCC, but um, I, I, for one, would go on and suggest that this merger is really not in the best interests of the community. It's going to decrease diversity and decrease um, actually the participation of the local on uh, local news. And maybe a uh, more macro level merger that we're hearing about now, and, and um, it's obviously still subject to approval. Um, of antitrust regulators is Disney's purchase of the lion's share of uh, 21st century Fox as well for uh, a cool $52 billion. Now, uh, Rupert Murdoch um, has assured that he's going to retain control of uh, Fox Broadcast Network, Fox News, and and Fox Sports as well. Um, But Disney will will now have the, the 20th century Fox, 21st century Fox, properties. And from what I've read about it, it seems like a big piece of what they're trying to do with that is starting to take more control of online video. Disney's already talking about having their own streaming service. They've got a partnership with Netflix now that is going to run out soon and, and we're likely to see uh, Disney have it have become a player in online video as well, and this appears to be a move in that direction towards um, Disney having a larger online presence. And this is really interesting to follow as we think about traditional media uh, versus new media, and our really I don't want to say new media, but really more Silicon Valley technology-based companies uh, and how they continue to sort of battle out for. Uh, for market share, which is really, really interesting to, to, to watch. Yeah, the um, in, in the Hollywood Reporter version of this story, which uh, the one that leads with Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota requesting hearings about the this deal, there's a quote from uh, Larry Downs, who's an antitrust expert, and fellow at the Georgetown McDonough School of Business, who says, quote, Disney is saying we need more clout because we're losing leverage to the Netflixes and Amazons and Googles. When it's a defensive deal, antitrust should encourage it because you've got a competitor that's becoming weaker. Um, so, you know, once again, the whole idea of antitrust is a little bit outside of people's normal, you know, th- this is what I think about at the dinner table every day. Yeah, it's hard to talk about this kind of stuff. Like, again, because as I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's complex. It's not really fun to think about the business side of things. But uh, as you've mentioned, there's such a, a incredible impact that it can play, particularly on, on local communities as to how you end up receiving media and the types, type of media that you receive as well. So we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back talking to Chris Keithley, talking about the world of film uh, and uh, 2017 and maybe some of what's going to be coming up in 2018. So we'll be back right after a break. opportunity today where we've been very um, geographically grounded in our podcast so far in our little sliver of the world. We've recorded everything within Gaylord Hall at the University of Oklahoma and any guests have come in here. But we have now became technical geniuses. I, well, I actually have to say the technical genius is uh, a friend of ours named David Candy, who I'd like to say thank you to for helping get our technical setup uh, working as efficiently as it is. And what he's done is given us an ability that we don't deserve. That's right. And we'll probably Pure osmosis. Misuse, right. Uh, which is to reach out into the world and bring in people who are much smarter and much more interesting than we are so that, um, you know, we can, like, buffalo you into thinking we're smart because we have smart friends. So that's kind of the setup. So um, our guest today is Chris Keithley, who is a professor 
at uh, Middlebury. Chris? Yep, I'm here. Thank you. Wow. And so we are we are in different time zones. And uh, um, so Chris is actually going to hit the solstice an hour before we do. Um, and as you all know, it is the shortest day of the year. And if we don't think too carefully about it, the days will just get shorter and shorter until there's no <laughs> sun whatsoever. And if that doesn't happen, then we're going to have to commit a human sacrifice, right, just to make sure it keeps happening. So, Chris, are you in for that? Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. Can you give us an update of what's happening in Middlebury, Vermont right now? Well, Middlebury is not, um, you know, a, a action-packed kind of place. Um, right now it's cold and snowy and uh, quiet because the students aren't here. Um, so, that, and, and you know, it's usually quiet even when the students are here. So, so you look out your window and think, yeah, there's yeah. a postcard. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's disgusting. Much right. Yeah, I look yeah. out my window and then I have to look down at my mug to get that scene because we have we have the Christmas <laughs> mugs out now and it's the people on the sleighs going through the snow and I look out in my backyard and all I see is brown grass and dog crap. Yeah, so. I actually I spoke once at Middlebury College and I opened up with a joke that's like, "You guys have trees. That's nice. Like, it's very pretty here." <laughs> so. Um, Chris is in the what, what's the what's the department designation? Film and media culture. Yeah, and uh, not have a hand in naming it. Right. Yeah. Well, we never get it, and and the names are always pretty arbitrary in our field yes. anyway, um, and they keep changing and morphing. But uh, we we try to make sure that they address it. So uh, I got to know Chris quite a few years ago, and he was a a film guy. Uh, and I was sort of a part-time film guy, although I was doing a journalism mass comm degree, but there's enough overlap there to allow us to have a civil conversation. So we did and found out we had a lot in common in terms of um, the sorts of things we were looking at and the way we were thinking about them. And so I just thought that um, at this point in our podcast lives, uh, since we are at the solstice and the world is going to end shortly, that we might want to do a little bit of review of sort of what's been happening in the media world from a an outside perspective. And so I thought Chris could come in and, uh, and join us in doing that. So are you up for that? Absolutely. That? I, I should, uh, maybe what I can start out with to, so people know a little bit more about you is maybe you can talk a little bit about the kind of work that you've done. Um, and especially, uh, that mysterious term that everybody has that they talk about at the breakfast table, which is cinephilia. Good morning. Yeah. Would you like more coffee? And would you like some cinephilia on your bagel? Yes, <laughs> so. uh, absolutely. I'll, <clears throat> I'm always up for that. Yeah. Um, well, as as you said, Ralph, we met back in Iowa City, Logos, many years ago. And and at the time when I was in graduate school, I got interested in cinephilia as a concept. And I guess maybe to define it, it's it's simply as some people have said, um, people who are uh, it's an obsession with cinema, life organized around the cinema. And that that might seem a little silly in our present context, but I think there was a period in, let's say in the 1950s in Europe and, and then in the United States in the 60s and into the 70s, when cinema was sort of at its culture, the peak of its cultural prestige, there was a lot of good work being done, a lot of good films being made. Um, there were a lot of critics writing, and think about it, Daily newspapers didn't have regular film critics until into the 60s. And then, lo and behold, everybody did. It seemed everybody seemed to understand that cinema was the art form for the moment, so to speak. Um, and I, I sort of got interested in movies at the tail end of that when I was a kid, because I, I got interested in movies when I was still in elementary school. Um, and so I would read books about movies. I would read film criticism. I grew up in South Florida. A lot of movies didn't even come down there. So I would read about movies I didn't, didn't even have a chance to see. Um, but part of it was simply that. And, and, and I don't think that this is unusual. I think that there have been other times we can point to even in the 20th century when one art form becomes, particularly a popular art form, becomes very urgent. Um, you know, there was a time in the 50s when I think culturally poetry enjoyed um, a cultural status. It has not since. There was obviously a period in the 60s of, of rock music when that would enjoyed uh, uh, a particular cultural prestige. And that happened with cinema in the 60s and into the 70s. Yeah, I think I remember in the same historical period thinking that these critics that were suddenly surrounding us were, were things that people argued about, pe things that people took very seriously. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, there was a lot of, uh, and that's what made it exciting in many ways, um, is there was a lot of disagreement um, among certain critics, let's say, between Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael or Andrew Saris and John Simon. And I know those names won't mean a lot to younger people, but they're really important in this debate about the place of cinema in culture. They all agreed it was important, but what its particular value was and how it should function and how we should think about movie directors and Hollywood versus Europe, it was intense. Um, and people took sides and I took the Andrew Sarah side. I'll, on, I'll, I'll admit it. Right? Now you're in trouble. The yeah, world, the world will know. Um, See, for me, for me, it was the battle between Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, who were really not so much. I mean, they were one actually did have a background in film. The other was just sort of the guy who stuck his hand up in the room. Yeah. And and so it was kind of the battle between them, which actually ended up being a TV series. So, you know, it's funny you should mention them because they really do come in at the end of that. Remember, um, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were writing for the two big Chicago newspapers and they were sort of rival critics. And then they started a local a movie review show there on, I think on WGN. Um, no, is that, is that the station yeah, in Chicago? Uh, WTTW maybe the public station. Right. One of them. Yeah. So I remember I first saw that initial review show, which I think was called sneak previews. Oh, I don't know around 1977 or 78, but it had already been going on. The earliest one, uh, episode I found on YouTube is one from 1975 where they review one flew over the cuckoo's nest which is worth tracking down because these, these guys had not yet learned um, to, to speak on camera with, with um, any degree of dynamism. Um, <laughs> I, I just remember this very snide sniping at each other because oh, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't agree about things. And it was, you know, it wasn't quite at the level of, you know, um, say watching Gore Vidal, you know, uh, um, and, and Norman Mailer, and Norman right. Mailer go after each other. But there was, but there was this, it was, it was, it was snooty, you know? Yes, it, it absolutely could get that way. And so that, that show emerges sort of right at the end of this period I'm talking about in the mid seventies. Um, when, when movies were worth arguing about at a higher cultural level, if you take my meaning, than they had previously. Mm-hmm. And that would be the point than they had previously. So, um, so what do you think has happened in the, uh, yeah, I think, and this might be the question that you're trying to ask too, Ralph, but I'm curious because I feel like a lot of that has to do with the fact that the media, there's a, there's a scarcity of the media. And as we've moved to maybe more an abundance of media that can be taken in yeah. and then also an abundance of criticism, right? The fact that any of us can now have podcasts uh, and become media critics, you know, how has that changed the landscape of the things that you're thinking about? Well, I think it has both in terms of of, uh, the movies themselves, if we're talking about cinema, and criticism about it. It has become um, so widespread. There are so many movies available to us, um, and there are so many people writing criticism. It's hard sometimes to sort through things. The other other problem is there are more people than ever who want to be – film critics and they write online and it's harder for commercial outlets to sustain um, uh, regular critics on their payroll. I apologize. My telephone is ringing. Oh, I thought maybe your toast was burning. <laughs> if it's just the phone, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, so it, it is simultaneously, there are more people writing, but it's harder to find people whose voices you can agree with uh, simply because there are so many or, or a voice to guide you. Maybe that would be it. Cause I was always looking for a critic as a kind of guide. This so, person. So, so, so yes. in that context, how do you think about um, the, the, the tomato meter, which has become sort of this, I mean, people are mm-hmm. now using that as a way to promote films to say, well, our, you know, rotten tomatoes rating is 94 and that's yes. really meaningful in the culture now. It absolutely is. Um, Actually, I'm a Metacritic guy, not a Rotten Tomatoes guy, okay. <laughs> for whatever reason. But it's an Andrew Saris thing. It's a, yeah, but it's they a... amount to something similar because I think on Metacritic they do the same thing. There, it it privileges critics over users. Let's put it that way, I, which I think Rotten Tomatoes um, balances them more. But yes, there is, there does seem to be a want. On the one hand, you can go read about a movie and read all the critical takes on it. On the other hand, because, you know, every 
average viewer, and I, I, I don't mean that to sound disparaging, but can throw in their two cents, there's simultaneously a kind of devaluing of what might be learned from um, a thoughtful, professional, trained practicing critic, if you take my meaning. I, you know, I, I learned a lot from reading criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a kind of leveling of, of voice um, in media and on the internet that, that is sometimes disappointing to me. Um, yeah, I think there was a, there's a lot of suspicion, I think, because of the also the confusion of, you know, a piece of media as a commodity as much as it was something that was either an art form or something that was pleasurable to consume. It also had mm-hmm. this commodity value. So like in that, this recent sale of a painting for, I don't even remember how much it was, but it was yes. three times. Yeah. yeah. It, multi, yeah. And, which they don't even know is really a Rembrandt, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so I think that, that that in addition to sort of the questionable nature of things and, and the fact that our culture isn't really good at talking about art anyway. Exactly. And, and that's why I say I, I, um, I guess that's it. I, I went to criticism to, to read, to learn, and also to have a better sense of the aesthetic value of things. I routinely growing up and well into adulthood would see movies and say, I don't really know what to think about that, that I'm not sure how to understand it. It's outside my experience. And I would turn to criticism to help me understand. Um, and and so th- there is, as I said, a kind of devaluing of that authority. Um, whereas, you know, and nowadays it, it seems like the more common response is, I don't get this, I'm moving along. Um, and, and, you know, as we know, art is sometimes quite challenging, not always, but sometimes very challenging. And it takes, um, it takes some kind of guidance, even for people who are, who are familiar with the forms and well-educated. So what, what, so then like, let's uh, talk about maybe what's going on in this media world now. Um, something I've talked about quite a bit is essentially a version of the, uh, of a convergence argument, which mm-hmm. is that the, you know, sort of the, to put it really simply, the place of film in the era that you're talking about has really swapped around to where what we would still call television is serving that purpose in a lot of cases. Would you agree with that? I think, oh yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I think that, that when we talk about convergence, um, as we know, when, when we were growing up, movies and TV were two different media forms that really didn't interact. You know, movies would get shown on television um, after their theatrical release, but that was, you know, that was no big deal. Um, movies existed in theaters and with video and then the internet and streaming and all that, that convergence, I think there's no question that it has been for the benefit of television as a form and to the detriment of cinema. Um, that's, that's what I think. And uh, we see it, we see how, how much good, good and worthy of attention television programming there is, um, available to us more than there's no question yeah and i think the kind of people who are attracted to work there also are like this is a canvas i've never had before oh yeah the stakes changed when it shifted from network television to sort of this like multiple possible production models and everything like that being able to produce for smaller numbers of people for niche audiences um made a lot of this possible it, the thing, you know, if we go back and we gauge those moments, I think you're right. The move from network um, to, to HBO and other specialized producers, the move from episodic to serial narrative, the, the knowledge that people would actually keep coming back if with an ongoing narrative, it was compelling or they would or they would um, time shift it somehow. Or also, and I still find it amazing that um you know, producers will make an entire season of a series and release it all at once. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it's it still it doesn't make sense to me. Although I do like everybody else. I just watched uh, yesterday the six episodes of Errol Morris's new movie, which is kind of a movie and kind of a TV show, right? Huh. Um, huh. That's well, I mean, it's kind of harkening back in a way to conversations we had a mil, about a million years ago when we were talking about, uh, do you, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a long conversation about our Hitler. Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, vaguely. Which, which, yeah. Now, so this was just, just to be, and I think this came out in, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the year. I'll have to look it up to, to figure it out. But basically it was a six hour long film that you would go to 
a movie theater to see in basically two, three-hour chunks with dinner in the middle. So we were spending six hours kind of watching a German filmmaker who thinks of himself kind of as an opera producer, right? Kind of eviscerating the German soul. (laughs) And then then you have a break for dinner. (laughs) Right, yeah. This is delicious. I feel like crap, yeah. But you know, there, here this gets at one crucial difference, though, in this in this question of duration, um, which is important. There aren't a lot of filmmakers who have worked with duration the way Sieberberg did in *Our Hitler* or the way Jacques Rivet has in some of his films or *Belatar*. Um, but, but as we know, part and this was this was a component of cinephilia was the the the. Um, the way in which we loved going to the movies and sitting down in the theater and there you give yourself over to the time of the film. The your time is no longer yours. The, the movie sets that. Whereas when you're watching in the comfort of your home and you can pause and you're, suddenly you're in control of the time. So even things that last many hours are experienced differently because you're in control. Yeah, I think, and I think it's interesting how the technology has learned how to integrate with that. We were watching some of Vietnam this week because what says Christmas more than Vietnam, right? Right. <laughs> and, and the amazing, the technology gives you the opportunity to skip the credits to go on to the next episode and then even skip right. the intro part so that you pop directly over to, so that you can create essentially through very little activity, this, if in the case of Vietnam, this continuous 18-hour experience if you want. Well, I, I think it, this is that's an interesting question about the way in which producers now, and that means makers, writers, directors, have to, especially if they're not releasing a season all at once, but let's say if you're working in, in network television where it comes out weekly, how do you balance between the sense of something episodic at and the sense of something continuous. Does this make sense? Because I think we've seen things where, and I'm trying to think of an example, in which it didn't binge well because it still felt too episodic. Well, I think, you know, I, did, did you watch the uh, the uh, series The Keepers? No. The, the multi-part documentary series. It was interesting because it was, rather than a sort of continuous linear story, it was approaching the story from a different perspective in each episode. So... When you went from one episode to the next, there were fairly major shifts in what you were supposed to be paying attention to. So I think that would be, you know, in a way kind of a key, too, is how much it's kind of a playthrough. Because even Vietnam has this chronological structure to it. Right. That, that makes it, that, that sort of makes it more bingeable friendly in a way. Or even, you know, Stranger Things that, that you know, we are going to be talking about in a future episode, there's a, there's a linearity to it um, that I think makes it much more bingeable. Mm-hmm. But one one thing that I do think still stands, and it was always the the old cliche, is that film is a director's medium and television is a writer's medium, <clears throat> and I believe that's still largely the case. There are some exceptions. Um, unfortunately, nowadays too many movies look like TV; they don't look like cinema. But I, but I think that that distinction still holds in spite of all these changes. Um, it's understandable that writers would want to go to television and work in the longer form. Um, and I can see why actors would want to do it. It's, it's, um, it's quite extraordinary. That's an interesting, it's an interesting thought because I think there's also been more of a prevalence of like a single authored television series. Um, you know, yes. which I think is an interesting development because it was so not how uh, commercial television was made previously. There's no question. Was True Detective the first to do that, um, in which all the episodes were directed by one person? Yeah. Um, and yet, well, let me ask you this, because I heard a few minutes. I don't want to jump ahead and preempt your, your future episode. But I heard a, a, a section of an interview with the – is it brothers who created Stranger yeah, Things? Yeah, the Duffer brothers. Right. And they were talking about it, and they talked about it very much in these terms that – the important work happens in the writing. And when you get to the set, this is this is oversimplifying what they were indicating, but we're sort of just adding the pictures. Right. <laughs> uh, but the really important creative work is in the writing. And that tells you something. It's not in some kind of visual interpretation of that. And I don't know enough about the conditions of production. I would assume that when you have a series in which one director uh, directs all the episodes that there may be a greater continuity of style. Um, 
But to me, it's always seemed for a long time, even in really outstanding television. I love the series Deadwood, which was on HBO years ago. But but even there, I still feel like visual style is more an extension of production design mm-hmm. than it is of uh, dramatic and and visual interpretation. Let's put it that. And I and I know that that's a stretch, but I, that's my feeling. I'd like to shift to get your thoughts on as we close out the year. What uh, what what have your what are your media consumption habits been like, particularly as it relates to TV and film? Um, particularly, what are some of the pieces that really stood out in your mind, um, whether they are movies or otherwise? Um, you know, do you have you are you developing in your head your top five or top ten list? Well, a couple of things, and this may be an interesting change. Um, People's nowadays, people's media consumption habits are so tied. I think they're more tied to the specifics of their lives than they ever were. You know, I think there was a time when people obviously people went to the movies once or twice a week. Everybody kind of did it or most everybody. Um, And now it's it's like the duration issue. We have so much more control. So um, there are several things that determine my media consumption habits. I live in Middlebury, Vermont, actually not even in Middlebury. I live outside of town. Uh, we have one movie theater. Um, if I want to go to a movie, I have to go to up to Burlington, which is an hour away. That affects what, how I consume media that way. Also, as Ralph knows recently, my wife and I are empty nesters. And so we tend to watch in the evening. So although my primary interest is, is cinema, um, I tend to watch more television lately. My wife and I like to get in the groove watching something that we want to return to every evening that feels rewarding um, and that doesn't feel like we're just kind of killing time until it's time to go to bed and get up tomorrow and start over. Um, so I, I have to say I, I, I can tell you some things I've seen that I liked, but they may not be films from this year. Um, for instance, I watched uh, the German film Tony Erdmann, uh, a few months ago, which was generally regarded among critics as one of the best films of, of 2016. And it's fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. Then there's also this, you know, my wife and I watched a, a French film by Mia Hansen Love uh, titled um, Things to Come, I believe, with Isabelle Huppert. And yeah, it is. It's about a middle-aged woman or a woman in late middle age. And it's sort of that, that appeals to us because that's where we are. Um, <laughs> But but I don't typically go to go to the theater to see the latest blockbuster releases, both because it's not always easy. And many of them I'm not particularly interested in. I'm not opposed to them. I'm, I've never seen a superhero movie. This is shocking to my students, <clears throat> um, as I'm sure you can imagine. That Yeah, that's yeah, I definitely like that would be a thing that definitely puts a space between students and yourself. And I always use that as kind of a question to ask them. Um, is uh, why do you think this is? Why have why have why what is it in culture that explains why the superhero thing is so consuming of all of the mm-hmm. oxygen in our cinema culture? The only the only thing I can uh, and can really suggest, and it's the obvious thing, is that spectacle still works best on a big screen in a room with other people. Um, it, it it can play on a TV screen, even a big TV, but but there's something about the spectacle experienced that um, it draws people in. Let's go and see it on a big screen in IMAX or 3D with surround sound, and, and it's a different experience. Whereas most, if you know what I mean, domestic dramas seem to play just as well on television as they do in a movie theater. Um, and so, so many people, and it's also generationally based the primary audience for primary, not exclusive audience for superhero movies, um, and Marvel and so forth are younger and they're people who are looking to get, get out of their house and go out and do things socially in a different way than people of older generations are. I think that's still primarily it is the difference between spectacle and narrative. And it seems to have broken down pretty clearly a lot of the richest narrative takes place on television and the best spectacle and action and so forth happens in the movie theater um it's probably an oversimplification but that's kind of what i see there's so yeah if i can just ask a slightly personal question so what's your setup at home how do you watch things 
Um, well, we have a TV in the family room. We have Roku, so we stream things or we watch them on, on Blu-ray. Uh-huh. Have you gone into the, um, are you are you a buyer into the huge screen 4K, 6 to 1 kind of home no, theater setup? No, because I have two kids in college. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I had a really nice plasma screen TV, um, like a 52-inch or something, that I loved and it some some component went really early and uh, they basically said yeah you just gotta you just gotta throw this away and start over you can't mm-hmm. repair it did, so did you take I it have, out behind your house and shoot it <laughs> I that's should. what I would have done <laughs> I'd have been so angry <laughs> of course I had to find a gun but <laughs> oh I was really angry I was really angry especially because of my my friend and colleague Jason Mattel. Uh, he has the same TV. He bought it like two years before me, and his is still going strong. So it just was bad luck. Well, you should I, go shoot his then, too. <laughs> I would like to get a new big TV, but I, I think it's going to have to wait a couple of years. Yeah, I, I always kind of joke kind about, of joke about s- sitting closer as the alternative to actually getting a bigger <laughs> TV, because that works also. But and, and I do sometimes, you know, the college has a, has a film series, which my department programs, and, and we have a wonderful 60-screen um, seat screening room and which i can use at any time go down there and even watch movies there and that's a really big screen because it's a short room <laughs> so um yeah that's 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 my setup i'd be curious to hear what's a uh, student participation like in those now um is that something that you've seen grow or dwindle recently oh you mean the college film series yeah oh yeah but students almost never come um, this is a funny thing. We have this endowed. Our department has this endowment was donated by this guy, Hirschfield. I can't remember his first name. Um, yeah, he was a president at Columbia or Warner Brothers at some point. And his kids went here and he donated this money, which is wonderful because we use it to bring speakers and we program this film series. And it's an international film series through the year. And it's sort of, you know, second run stuff. What was in the art cinema's six months ago or last year or whatever. Um, but the, the, I would say student attendance is, I don't know, probably at each screening fewer than 10% of the people are students. It's mostly people from the community. Um, which is fine. It still brings people in and people do come just not students, but this is not unique to Middlebury. I've visited other schools and they say it's the same thing. But it's also a problem even – I think there are faculty and others that used to come to these movies regularly. But why should I wait six months to see a movie that I could watch on Netflix six months ago? (laughs) And I think that's what people do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it continues to happen, and I'm glad it does. But, no, even in the 15 years I've been here, I would say average attendance overall is maybe half of what it was when when I got here. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. How, how have uh, conversations yeah. with students changed as far as it goes about uh, talking about film or talking about uh, popular media in general? So an example is like, like a- after virtually every series I watch or every movie, I'm either mm-hmm. trying to c- uh, consume traditional criticism that uh, that is in the in the Roger Ebert side of criticism or I'm trying to find like a podcast with the writers or directors right. or our lead actors, you know? And so what, what I end up doing, I feel like I'm, I'm doing is creating this little microcosm of a community that allows me to, um, uh, you know, to, to experience that type of conversation. Is that something that, that you've seen students talk about more is, uh, their desire to want to find criticism throughout the internet, throughout the web and throughout other mediums as well? Um, and maybe it's something that's less happening within, you know, the classroom spaces themselves. Well, I think that students do talk about, you know, another advantage, Middlebury is a very small school. So, um, you know, we only have about 2,500 students, which means everybody knows a lot, you know, most of the other people. And I, so I feel like this conversation is going on all the time, Uh, but I'm not sure that the students are seeking out criticism so much as they are seeking out, um, more conversation, more information, particularly some that's stimulating. You know, I, I, I say that when, when I started getting interested in movies as a kid, it was really before the video revolution. So, you know, I went to a movie. The only way to extend the pleasure of the movie was to get my parents to take me back again 
or else read about it. And now I feel like for a long time, actually, students, they, they weren't interested in reading at all. They just wanted to reconsume, you know, because they could they saw something they could bit torrent it and watch it over and over. And they talked among themselves. I think the emergence of podcasts and other forms like this, where this conversation is taking place, has sort of reinvigorated that level of interest. But I'm not sure it's reinvigorated an interest in in criticism, strictly speaking. Um, you know, I always have a, a couple of students who are really interested in cinema specifically and not very interested in television. They won't, they're interested in movies and they read criticism and film history, but they're the exception, I would say. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot more conversation, but it's goes back to what we were saying earlier. I'm not sure it's, maybe it's becoming more focused again, it sort of drifts in and out, I think. Yeah, I think the one of the things that's kind of interesting is that that wall between sort of when you're thinking about narrative fiction film or even the artifice of documentary, um, if you consume the you know the the object itself, the film itself, and then you go hear about it and you hear the actors talk about it and everything like that, it's really interesting to try to think about how do audiences make sense of the relationship between the creation and the creators. I mean, I think that's a it's it's become sort of more permeable in a way. um, Right. But whether that enhances the experience or damages it, um, but that does bring one thing we talked about a little bit before. Maybe we can kind of end with this happy note: um, the recent changes in the um, way that uh, men have been behaving in the media industry. Yes. Um, yeah. So how is that? How is that affecting your environment? Well, uh, I'm on sabbatical right now, so I haven't been in the classroom this fall. Um, but I've had conversations with people. I had a a conversation with a friend the other day. And I will say everything that has happened, and I think this is doing this for a lot of people, is making them think twice, that is teachers, let's say professors, uh, think a little more carefully about what they screen. And when I was talking about this with a friend, you know, I put it this way. We all have those movies, we, we or TV shows or whatever that we like that have some essential aesthetic weakness, right? This, this performance is bad or that storyline is bad, but I see past that to the good things. And I think many of us also have those things we love that, that the lapse is not so much aesthetic as moral. Um, I don't like the representation of this character. That's a little bit um, uh, problematic, but we sort of see past it. Uh, and of course, you know, naturally, the people who can see past things most easily are white men because it usually doesn't apply to them. <laughs> and but but I think as a result of this, the kinds of things that that viewers of all ages, but certainly young people were expected to see past or they did see past them because the culture said they could. I think that's changing. I, I think that my guess is next year when I step back into the classroom there's gonna be a much greater sensitivity to, to this question, and it is hard. It is very hard. Obviously, it's easier with, the, with, with film and other media that's really old. Um, we understand that often as a product of the time. But even there, I have to be careful. Um, I really love Preston Sturges, but there are, is one of his movies in particular in which you know, there's a, um, an African-American butler, and it is, you know, it's not a progressive, portrayal of this of this figure um it's very minor but i think that now in in the current context and when i'm trying to teach film to students um i would probably think a lot more carefully about those kinds of things and i think the colleagues i've spoken to um have said the same Mm -hmm. And, and i think they're preparing a place for these conversations to happen yeah, um, and that it's been implicit there. I mean, I, I was thinking, I was reading a, a piece, and this is going to sound really horribly pretentious, but it's not at all. Uh, a piece in the New York Times Book Review about two books about the Klan and its mm-hmm. historical, you know, comings and goings. It's a really fascinating article, and it ends with a great paragraph about our, our fearless leader's father. Uh, in a a Klan march. Um, But it also talks about Birth of a Nation. And I remember when I was a film student watching that and really not being prepared in any way to contextualize it. Right. Um, You know, in Birth of a Nation now is a simple example. And it has been for a long time because it's easy to avoid showing Birth of a Nation. 
um, and showing the bio, you know, Griffith's biograph shorts and, you know, maybe broken blossoms or something. Um, because it's impossible to, it has been for decades, it's impossible to show it without any discussion of innovative film form coming to a screeching halt around this valorization of the Klan. Um, Fair enough. Where it gets complicated is when it's not, it's maybe one minor component of the film, or where it's not anything in the film, it's things we know about the people who participated in the making of the film and their behavior. Um, That's more difficult than is sort of to be determined is how we will say, yes, it's unfortunate that this exists, but but we can still see past it to see value here. you know, to be continued on yeah. that front. Yeah, I think so. When I, you know, I'm always of the opinion that I'm hoping it does continue because I yeah. think there are some important, uh, some important chunks of consciousness that are coming up as a result of it. So I, I, I think absolutely. And it's, and it's in all kinds of different films. It's not just in sort of mainstream Hollywood stuff or mainstream awards bait stuff where this, where these kinds of things take place. Yeah. I think they take place at, at all levels. And I'm hoping that, you know, part of it is that women uh, and other marginalized groups having more access to the, to the writing and directing process. Yes, absolutely. And, and to the extent that they are just as importantly, I think the system such as it is, is going to encourage them to be leaders in how to be thoughtful about this. Um, I hope that is the case um, because it's, you know, it's no, it's no great advance if women become writers and directors, but they represent uh, characters and narrative in the same thoughtless way that so many men have. Yeah. It's, it's if they bring a thoughtfulness to it. And we also, as you said, want to be aware of, of people who have been thoughtful about their presentation of things. Um, You know, uh, let me give one quick example, if I may, a sort of reverse version of this is I routinely show in one class Rebel Without a Cause and talk about family melodrama in the 1950s. And on the surface, the movie seems quite traditional in its its valorization of, of the family. And I always ask these questions about the character of Plato, who's played by Sal Mineo, who's the friend of James Dean and Natalie Wood, um, who dies at the end, who gets shot. And I always ask the students, you know, sort of, why does Plato have to die? And I always put it that way, why does he have to die? Well, because this is a family melodrama and the movie is about reassuring us that Families that are struggling can can fix themselves and everyone will go to their appropriate gender and generational role. Um, Plato's family is broken beyond repair. But more importantly, Plato is the only actor who's ethnic or, or, or appears ethnic. And more importantly, the movie, not the script, but the direction clearly codes him as gay. The, the interesting part about the movie is not that, oh, well, the, the ethnic gay guy can die and it doesn't matter. It's the movie generates such extraordinary sympathy for him that when he dies, it doesn't feel like things have been fixed at all. It feels quite the opposite. And I think so. In other words, I think what Nick Ray has done a fabulous job of doing is saying, all right, on the one level, this is the way these movies need to go. But I am not going to let you off the hook here. You're going to feel this and you're going to feel that it, that it's not right. And the students to this day all agree that that's right, that the, that the movie is so empathic toward him that when he dies, it opens up something that the movie cannot resolve mm-hmm. and does not resolve. So th- at the same time, we're doing this where we're saying, uh, you know, look at this film and these objectionable representations at the same time, we can look at rich films from the past and say, this is a very complex and subtle progressive representation. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to put a spoiler alert at the top of the podcast. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause yet, you, know, you might, might, might want to change the, change the channel. Um, yeah. A question that I have for you is, what, what predictions do you have for 2018? Are there things that you're looking forward to? Um, the things that are the projects that are that, that are being worked on, or just in general, maybe more broad predictions that you have for what we, what we may experience next year. Um, well, if we make it through 2018, <laughs> and because the world could end. That's right. This podcast <laughs> wouldn't exist if there wasn't a possibility. 
you know, if I'm being cynical, I have to say right now, uh, more of the same. And that's and I don't mean that just bad. I don't see some big sea change coming. I, I'm obviously maybe if I worked in the industry, I might. Um, I think things are fairly stable right now for both the motion picture and television industries. They've got business models in place. Uh, they know how to make money. Um, and as we know, um, and, and television may be a bit of an exception here. I know with the movie business, movies are always more interesting when things are bad economically for them because then they're willing to try anything. Um, but if they've got a formula, which they certainly do, and it works the majority of time, they're just going to keep doing that. Um, whether, whether there will continue to be developments in the production and consumption of television and other media, um, I, I don't know, it remains to be seen. I guess I'm not a very compelling prognosticator here. I'm sorry. Oh, that, that, that's okay. That's part of what makes criticism such a miserable science, after all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, always, it's always kind of looking backwards and saying, nah. <laughs> things, things will continue to worsen <laughs> that there is that guarantee yes except that now i think we're i think we're in a it's just a just a little there's an interesting cultural moment as far as the fast because of course what you just said made me think of pt barnum and you know, uh -huh, I, yeah. I don't know if this is this is true or apocryphal but him supposedly saying you will never lose out by underestimating your audience right <laughs> Yes, um, right. And there seems to be a cultural fascination because there's a Barnum musical that's yes, in the process of coming out. There was a, you know, a book about some of the sideshow um, um, people. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there's there's and of course, we're in an era where the circus is dying. You know, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so there we are. It, well, I hadn't thought about that. but You're right. It sure is, isn't it? The yeah. last gasp of presentational entertainment like that. Yeah. Um, I used to go to the circus growing up, didn't you? I, I went a couple of times. We uh, took my daughter, and she said her main thing was she wanted to watch the lady ride the elephant. That's, <laughs> that's what she wanted to see. And, of course, you go from that to the documentaries recently about what happened to elephants who were in the circus, and it's just uh -huh. like, yeah, it's really it's really good that that's kind of going away at this yeah. point. Yeah, it is. I always, yeah. Even as a child, I regard it as fairly tedious, but yeah. Uh, so. Well, Chris, thank you for spending some time with us. This has been great. Really appreciate it. It was a great it. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both. Yes, and we will. Uh, we will. Uh, you. You should be able to uh, see if your predictions or non-predictions are actually turning <laughs> out to be true. You took the safe route, I noticed, but that's. <laughs> That's okay. Things <laughs> things will continue through sheer inertia. I'm I'm a big fan of that that approach. That's also. right. Yeah. So they always have. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us at the end of the world. Thank you, Absolutely. Chris. My pleasure.